All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. You know, the whole motivation behind this commentary is to help people understand the Bible. Over the years of being a pastor and a Bible college professor, I've met so many people who just struggle to understand the Bible, and that really hinders their ability to follow Jesus. And because of that, I decided to put some of these resources out online to help people like you understand the Bible. And so would you consider... Uh, sharing the commentary on social media and sharing with your friends so that more people can find it, so that more and more people can understand the Bible and follow Jesus. And I'd also like to invite you to consider partnering with the listener's commentary by donating. This is a crowdfunded project, hours and hours of time, years and years of research being given away for free for the benefit of people all around the world. And it's made possible by the generosity of people just like you. So would you consider partnering with the listener's commentary by giving a one-time or monthly donation? You can do that at the Give page at listenerscommentary.com. I'll have a link to that down in the notes below. All right, in this session, we are going to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And this section provides a solution to the problem that Paul has been wrestling with over the last few paragraphs. In chapter 7, particularly the last paragraph of chapter 7, Paul highlighted the struggle to be holy and the struggle to please God that came from a person who knew God's law, loved God's law, wanted to keep God's law, but sin was so deep within them, they failed to keep it repeatedly. And he describes the anguish of, of that there at the end of chapter 7. Well, what's the solution to that? Is God just going to leave us to kind of wallow in our sins and continue with the struggle? Or does God have an ultimate solution for that? Well, Romans chapter 8, beginning with this section we're going to look at here, really begins to provide God's ultimate solution to that. God does have a solution, and that solution Paul describes here as the law of the spirit of life in contrast to the law of sin and death. And that word law will be important because we know in chapter 7 Paul is talking about the law. and The law actually became complicit with sin and led to death, not because the law was bad, but because sin was so bad. Well, how does God save us from the law of sin and death? He does so by the Spirit. And so Romans chapter 8 here shows us the solution to the struggle of Romans chapter 7, 13 through 25. And as we work through Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, notice the emphasis on life and death. And that's intentional and important because this section answers the problem of sin and death that was introduced in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. There, in that paragraph in chapter 5, Paul said that Adam unleashed sin and death on the world, and ever since then, sin and death have marched through the world as a destructive duo wreaking havoc on God's good creation. And so as you read through Romans, the end of Romans 5, and then into chapter 6 and 7, sin and death is everywhere, right? And sin is causing death. Death is the result of all this. So sin and death is everywhere. And here in Romans 8, 1 through 8, we see exactly how God is going to bring life into a midst of a world that's marked by sin and death. And what we learn is that that much more work of Jesus that uh, triumphed over sin and death, right, brought grace and life that Paul described there in 5, 12 through 21, that much more work of Jesus is actually 
brought to fruition, brought to reality in our lives and in this world through the work of the Spirit who God has now poured out. It's the Spirit whose presence in our life frees us from sin and death. It's the Spirit who will be involved in our resurrection at the end. It's the Spirit who enables us to put to death the deeds of the body. It's the Spirit who marks us out as God's very own children and thus heirs of everything that God has to offer. It's the Spirit who helps us endure our sufferings in the present time. In fact, the word Spirit shows up here in chapter 8 20 times. It's only used five times in the first seven chapters of Romans. It's only used a few times after this chapter in Romans. But here in chapter 8, 20 times, and that reminds us that Romans 8 is all about the Spirit because the Christian life is life in the Spirit. And so the Spirit now is being poured out in us, and he is applying to our life all the accomplishments of Jesus' work so that we can live the way God called us to. And so, after describing the anguish and the struggle that sin and death uh, had on the person who was trying to relate to God on the basis of his law, Paul begins chapter 8 by saying, Therefore, here's the conclusion, here's the great solution to the problem of sin and death. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when you move out of Adam and into Christ, the, the whole thing changes for you. There is no condemnation for you. And this idea, this concept of condemnation first showed up there in the end of chapter 5, where as a result of Adam's sin and transgression and sin and death thus being released into the world, Paul said there in chapter 5 that condemnation now came to all men, he says in Romans 5, 18. Or again in Romans 5, 16, he says that through one man's transgression, there resulted condemnation to, to people. Well, guess what? When you move from being in Adam to in Christ, the result is no condemnation for you. You're no longer under condemnation in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 then begins to explain why that's the case. Notice again the word for at the beginning of verse 2 that highlights this explanation. Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, here's why. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so the reason there's no condemnation for you is you have been set free. Notice that, the tense, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. Already accomplished fact has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so there's no condemnation for you because you've been set free from the law of sin and death. How have you been set free from the law of sin and death? Well, by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And as we noted in the introduction, the word law is really important. Paul uses the word law here in verse 2 because he's playing off of the, the weakness of the law as described in chapter 7. So chapter 7 was dealing with the weakness of the law, and the weakness of the law wasn't in that the law was bad. It was that the, the law couldn't change in Adam people, 
and make it possible for them to actually obey God. That was its weakness. So the law of the Spirit now has come in and has done that. The law of the Spirit, the Spirit, in other words, being poured out in us, has made us a new kind of human with new abilities to please and obey God. And so the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And you could understand law of sin and death just as the principle of sin and death, which is probably the overall force of it. But it's intentional, the use of the word law, because as he said in chapter 7, the law was complicit with and tied up with sin and death. And so the Old Testament law was still part of the old system that was marked by sin and death. But in Christ, the new has come, and now we have the spirit of life in Christ Jesus to help us live the way God wants us to live. He continues the explanation in verse 3, and he says, For what the law could not do, so as he described in chapter 7, what the Old Testament law was incapable of doing, weak as it was through the flesh. That was the problem. The problem with the law was that it was too weak to deal with human fallenness. That's what he means by the flesh here, right? So humans in their fallenness, in their flesh, in Adam, uh, the law was too weak to actually deal with that. So God did it. So what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God stepped in. God solved this problem. How did he do that? Well, he did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. So God sends Jesus as a human being who looks just as human as everyone else, right? So he looked just as human as everyone else, was genuinely as human as everyone else, except that he didn't have fallen human flesh. And he sent him as a sin offering, as an offering for sin or as a sin offering. God condemned sin in the flesh. So by sending Jesus as a sin offering, God condemned sin rather than condemning human beings, rather than condemning you and me. And so if you move into Jesus, you get the benefit of uh, what happened, right? Like God condemned sin in Jesus so that he didn't have to condemn you. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Here's the ultimate result in verse four. So that, that idea of so that is, here's the goal, here's the purpose, here's the result of that, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so the ultimate result of this work of God in Jesus and the Spirit is that the requirement of the law should be fulfilled in us. What's the requirement of the law? Well, the word requirement, dikaioma in Greek, is singular. And so it's the requirement, as the translation here gets it. And that word can refer to one of two things. It can refer to the verdict of the law, so that the verdict of the law could be fulfilled in us, possible. Or it could refer to the, the requirements of the law, what the, what the law expects you to do. Um, and that's the way, for example, the NIV takes it that way. In fact, the NIV goes so far as even to make it plural, the requirements of the law. Um, I tend to think that that's the better uh, understanding of it here, not just the verdict of the law. Paul's dealt with the verdict issue in chapter 3. We know that's part of his thinking on this. But here he's talking about 
our lifestyle. When he talks about walking by the Spirit, not the flesh, he's talking about the way we conduct our life, the way we go about life. And so what he seems to be talking about is that now, by virtue of the Spirit, we're able to actually fulfill the requirement that the law had for God's people. And what is that requirement? Holiness. The law expected God's people to be holy. In fact, the law said, be holy as I am holy, right? God said that in the Old Testament law. That's quoted uh, a time or two in the New Testament. That's the ultimate requirement of the law. I tend to think that's probably the best understanding of the phrase here in view of the fact that everything in the uh, following context is about the way we go about living our life. So it's not so much about the verdict of the law as it is about the holiness of the law that is required of us. And before we move on to verses 5 and following, just notice all the benefits that Paul has already listed off that have come for us in and through the work of Jesus in the Spirit. No condemnation for us. Set free from sin and death by the law of the Spirit of life. Uh, that instead of us being condemned, sin's been condemned. And so sin is the, the death penalty has already been pronounced on sin. And now we have a new ability to please God and fulfill what the law always expected of us, holiness. And we do that by virtue of the Spirit. And so God has done a great work in solving the problem of sin and death in and through Jesus and the Spirit. Now, Paul goes on in verses 5 through following to describe uh, one of the key components of what it means to walk by the Spirit, how we walk by the Spirit, and it has to do with our mind and what our mind is set on and focused on. And then he'll talk about the benefits and the results of that. So let's listen to what he says here in verses 5 and following. He says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. And so one of the key components to walking by the Spirit has to do with what occupies our mind. It's actually quite stark here. Literally in Greek, this sentence simply reads, flesh people mind the flesh, spirit people mind the spirit. That's literally the force of what's actually said here. And so it has to do with what you mind, what you focus on, what occupies uh, your thinking. In fact, um, the Expository Dictionary of the New Testament, commenting on the way Paul uses the word for mind here, he says, dependence on the flesh or dependence on the spirit determines the nature of the whole person, including all of a person's thoughts and aspirations. It's this focus on your thoughts and your aspirations. Or the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology puts it this way. It says that the idea here includes thinking and striving in the whole of their life. And so when we talk about what uh, occupies your mind or your mindset, we're not just talking about you know a little bit of mental activity. We're talking about the entire uh, your entire life, what it what it revolves around, what it's set on, what it's focused on. We're talking about the aims of our life, the aspirations of our life, and the commitments of our life. That's what he means by mindset, right? So those who are according to the flesh, they're of the flesh. The whole their whole life is aimed at and oriented around the things of the flesh, the ambitions, the goals, the agendas 
the practices of the fallen fleshly world around us and fallen humanity. But those who are according to the Spirit, those who are of the Spirit and thus walk according to the Spirit, well, their mind, the, the, the focus of their life, the orientation of their life is on the agendas, the aspirations, the goals, and the practices of God's very own Spirit. And so to walk by the Spirit, one of the key components has to do with what your mind is set on, what your mind is filled with, what your mind is pursuing, what your mind loves, longs for, and thinks about on a regular basis. And here's the benefits of that. Notice what he says in verses 6 and following. He says, for the mind set on the flesh is death. And so if, if a person's mind is full of the, the in-atom stuff, the fallen stuff of the culture around us, the end road is death. That, that's a dead end street, literally. That's where it goes. The mindset on the flesh is death. It's a living death. There's just death tied up with that. Big death, little death, all sorts of death, right? But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Notice that. In contrast to the mindset on the flesh, the mind full of, preoccupied with, revolving around, and oriented to the spirit's things, the benefits of that is life and and peace. And then he goes on in verse 7 says, why is this the case? Well, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. The reason it leads to death is because it's hostile towards God and God is the source of life. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Uh, and so the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It, it doesn't submit to the law of God, it's not even really able to because the flesh is so fallen, so broken, as Paul described in chapter 7, it's not even really able to submit itself to the law of God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So to be outside of Christ and thus in the flesh and of the flesh is a desperate situation where it's just not possible to fully please God and the end of the line for that approach to life is death, is death. But God has provided a solution in that he has now sent his spirit. And the spirit, when a person orients their mind around the spirit and carries out their life in partnership with the spirit, walks by the spirit, that leads to life. Well, then the natural question for us is, what does it mean to walk by the spirit? And how do we do that? And again, in my commentary on Galatians, you can check that out. I have a whole uh, special study on walking by the Spirit. And so I don't want to repeat all of that here, but I would be remiss if I didn't at least talk about it a little bit, uh, particularly in view of uh, the emphasis here on you, your focus of your life and your mental activity. So let's just take a second and think about what does it mean for us to walk by the Spirit? And the first thing I would say before we actually even get into kind of our part of the equation is we have to remember that um, new life in and by the Spirit isn't something we make happen. This is God's work, right? Like God's the one who chose to send the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit himself has come to live with us and has given us new life. It, the Spirit is the one that resurrected our dead in sin spirits, right? The Spirit is the one who set us free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit has applied all of the work of Christ to our lives and made us alive to God. So it's not, it's not something we do. This is ultimately us partnering with God's very own spirit who has come to live with us. And so 
our job really is to live according to and to live in keeping with what God has done and is doing in and among us through his spirit. And then we respond to that by, to use Paul's language, by walking with him, walking in or with or by the spirit. And I like the word with because it's that picture of partnership. And I think that's the fundamental thing that's involved in walking with the Spirit is to live in real attachment to God by virtue of the Spirit. The Spirit of God has been given to us. And now we intentionally and consciously go about our life in partnership with Him. The imagery of walk is instructed to us. How did someone get around town in Paul's day? They walked. If they wanted to go from the marketplace to the gymnasium, they walked. If they wanted to go from their house to the corporate offices or to the the government offices, they walked. Right, That's how they got around town. If you wanted to go to the theater, you walked. That was the way you got anywhere. So the imagery of walk is this imagery of going about your daily life. And so to walk with the Spirit is to go about your daily life in partnership with Him. The Spirit becomes your walking partner in life. That's the picture. Um, And so this implies uh, activity and uh, movement on our part, that as we go about our life, we're intentionally being mindful of the Spirit. We're intentionally inviting Him into our events. We're intentionally setting our mind on Him and filling our mind with His things. And that's the actual emphasis here, is... What do we fill our mind with? What do we set our mind on? What do we uh, not allow to occupy our mind? What do we allow to occupy our mind? That there are things that come across the screen of our mind that we couldn't help, but we don't have to allow them to stay there or occupy that. We shoo them away and uh, we, we replace that with the Spirit's things. That's the idea. And so we're living our life in real attachment to God by virtue of His Spirit. Kenneth Birding, in his book on walking in the Spirit, describes it this way. He says, in daily life, this means that you talk to God throughout the day. You fill your mind with songs of worship. You keep directing your mind upward, right? You let your thoughts dwell on things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. You actively, by the Spirit, reject wrong thoughts as they come in. This is what it means to set our mind on the things of God and the things of God's Spirit, as Paul tells us to do here in Romans chapter 8. And then the more we do that, and the more we live in partnership with God this way, it goes beyond just occasionally filling our mind. It becomes the settled orientation of our life. The mindset on the Spirit is increasingly settled on orient around and committed to the things of the Spirit. And this, I think, is the crux of walking by the Spirit. It's where the whole focus of our life in both thought and in deed is is revolving around the very things of God, the very things of God's Spirit who has come to live with us. And so we're always aiming at something and striving for something And as those who are of the Spirit, what we're aiming at and striving for and walking towards are the things of God. And the Spirit himself now lives with us, and he keeps helping us do that more and more and more as we walk in real partnership with him. And Paul says that now 
those who do that, those who live that way, those who walk by the Spirit can fulfill the requirement of holiness that the law dreamed of but failed to produce. We can actually become holy. Not perfect. Don't hear me say that. Don't hear Paul say that. Not perfect, but genuinely holy from the inside out. And that happens not because of my own ability, but because of the Spirit's help within me, the Spirit that God has given us. He makes us holy. He is, after all, the Holy Spirit.